shouldn't you have foreseen that our politicians would manage to muck up the opportunity of Brexit? Uh, and would this it have changed the, the, the nature of the campaign or the result or anything like that? This is, you know, the day after the referendum, when I'd finally come down from cloud nine, I realised, oh my God, the very people I've been fighting for 20 yeah. years <laughs> are still in charge. Yeah. And you finish up with Mrs May as Prime Minister. Yeah. The total sellout. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, let's start with a reader question which came in, which I thought was especially interesting. In your interesting videos with Nigel Farage, he has on several occasions used the term globalist, seemingly as a pejorative, for example, in reference to Rishi Sunak. As a classical liberal and a fan of Adam Smith, I'm used to thinking of global free trade as a jolly good thing in terms of the raising the living standards of billions of people. So what does Nigel mean, and therefore, what am I missing? I get absolutely what you're saying, and, and, and you know, one of the potential benefits of Brexit was to leave the common commercial policy and be able to negotiate our own trade deals around the world, rather than having it done by an unelected bureaucrat uh, with a team of people on behalf of 27 different nations. So I completely get what you mean. Um, and I do think, actually, it's very interesting, isn't it, all these years on, uh, that a lot of Adam Smith's thinking is just as pertinent and just as relevant today as it was when he wrote it. Um, I Globalism uh, is a different force. You know, Are we living in an interconnected global economy? You bet your life we are. Possibly one that's too dependent on China, but that's more about strategic reasons, perhaps, than economic ones. Globalism is the force that is driven predominantly by the giant multinationals, that says it wants decision-making to move up from the nation-state to a whole series of bodies, be it the World Health Organization, putting out a treaty for how the next pandemic should be dealt with, be it the United Nations, who set out a charter, or did in 1951, as to who should be a refugee that now appears to apply to virtually the whole of the world, uh, when it comes to crossing the channel. But of course, the epicenter of globalism is Brussels. I mean, that is why the battle for Brexit was so profound, so powerful. It's why the entire world lined up against the UKIPites and then Boris Johnson and Michael Bogova, who joined the campaign in the end. And, 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 and that is about decision-making, moving beyond the democratic fingertips of ordinary people. You move it on up to a higher, much cleverer, so they think, group of people. And I see absolutely no evidence that people want to get rid of the nation state as a building block. In fact, quite the reverse. Uh, there are more There are more new countries being created every year. You know, in 1945, there were 55 countries in the world. There are now 210. So we're actually far from wanting to have global governance. Actually, individual people want to have a say on their part of the world. So that is what I'm talking about, the globalism. And I think everything about Rishi Sunak suggests it's not just the Goldman Sachs background, but everything about Sunak suggests the desire to please on the world stage, uh, the desire uh, for these post-war bodies that were set up, possibly with very good intentions, to retain power. Uh, and that is why you've seen the recent sellout to Brussels. Now that the king is going to be used more extensively to improve European relations. Well, 
you know, you can kiss goodbye to getting rid of EU laws. You can kiss goodbye to competitiveness. You can kiss goodbye uh, to us getting back our fishing rights. Um, I do possibly, though, see the Trans-Pacific deal um, as being a way forward. That might just help us uh, break away from the EU a little bit further. But I, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think Rishi Sulak voted Brexit. I mean, I think he said he voted Brexit because he had lots of small farmers in North Yorkshire who couldn't put up with EU red tape who were getting no benefit, small livestock farmers in, in North Yorkshire, getting no benefit. And I think if he'd come out as a Remainer, he worried about reselection. So that's my take on it, but good question. I'm even more cynical than you, Nigel. I think this is all about creating career pathways for politicians after we vote them out of national politics. Uh, they need to go somewhere <laughs> like the WHO and the IMF and so on and so forth. Um, the answer that I expected from you featured something along the lines of, the only way to control the amount of government interference in our lives is through competition between governments. So, for example, the only reason we don't have incredibly high tax rates is because somewhere like Ireland will benefit from having a low tax rate. The only reason we didn't have you know, crazy trade policies is because somewhere else then would steal our trade. And when we have a globalist policy, uh, yeah. which we all share between nations, then we have the same, and that creates an absence of competition well, between nations. Which of course. Adam Smith's key point. Of course. I mean, look at the OECD proposal for minimum corporation tax rates of 15%, something Sunak has signed up to, you know, very, very, very strongly. Yeah, look, I believe in competition, competition in regulation, competition in tax. And I think it, it, it is in a competitive environment uh, that you get innovation, that you get more money generally spent on R&D, and where you get genuine you know, technological advances and changes. And, and let's not kid ourselves. You know, Europe, the European Union, and us, we are falling way behind the rest of the world on many of these things. Yeah, and what creates the opportunity is that we benefit by pursuing the right policy because everyone else pursuing the wrong policy doesn't get that benefit. Uh, let's move on to an amusing headline I read in the Telegraph, which I can't wait to see your facial expression on. House prices have fallen. Is Brexit finally to blame? The claims, of course, that the uh, the Treasury analysis uh, back from the referendum days suggested that there would be a hit to the value of people's homes by at least 10% and up to 18%. And now that house prices are indeed falling post-Brexit, um, is Brexit to blame? Of course, what I really want to ask you about here is that, that the Brexit issue, issue seems to be settling. Um, what's your verdict on the, the, some of the predictions that were made and what's actually happened and the gap between the two? I mean, that vile George Osborne, who's been back in the news this week, he wants to tack cakes, orange juice, and ban smoking. I mean, go to hell, please. Um, we don't like you very much. If this, if this is conservatism, God help us. And yeah, I mean, Osborne was the lead, wasn't he, for the Treasury on, you know, collapse in house prices, several hundred thousand jobs to leave the city of London. The opposite has happened. Um, uh, David Cameron, of course, went further and suggested World War III might result. Um, as a result of Brexit, and some even try to blame the pandemic on Brexit. Uh, forget it. Uh, but the house to be fair, is... Nigel, if, if we did have World War Three, the media would blame it on Brexit. Well, probably, yes. I mean, I, well, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But no, I think, um, I think uh, you know, the truth of it is that at any damage, I mean, well, you know, when you move house, there is a cost of moving house, but you do it because you see a benefit. You're upsizing, you're downsizing, you're doing it for a reason. Uh, but when you move house, you, you need to take advantage of that move. And our problem is 
we've incurred some of the costs of leaving through what was a very badly negotiated deal. I mean, you know, you could argue that Boris was given a very bad hand by Theresa May. But the point about it is, if you face some increased costs in one area, you overcome that and more by making other things more competitive. And what have we done? We've used Brexit to put taxes up. I mean, think about this. Think about this. The day we left the European single market, we put 20% on foreigners shopping in Britain in terms of VAT that wasn't there before. That is an anti-competitive measure that is bad for Britain. It's one little example of why we've got it wrong. And I think the frustration, the disappointment, is people aren't seeing the benefits of Brexit. On the world stage, it's different. I've mentioned already the negotiations that are happening in the Pacific, and I think that's really quite important. We've talked before about the AUKUS deal with Australia and what, what that's going to mean for the submarine yards, you know, up in Barrow, in Furness. You can argue on Ukraine. You know, we, we took a very leading role. You may agree or disagree with the position that Boris took. We took a very leading role. So I think on the world stage, Brexit's made us, you know, a much stronger force in the world. I just think domestically, you know, millions of people running small businesses, that voted, fishermen, people like that, that voted for Brexit, hoping for reduced regulations, just haven't seen it. So, so we haven't taken advantage is really the answer. Yeah, focusing on the first part of that answer, shouldn't you have foreseen that our politicians would manage to muck up the opportunity of Brexit? Uh, and would this it have why. changed the, the, the nature of the campaign or the result or anything like that? This is, you know, the day after the referendum, when I'd finally come down from cloud nine, I realized, oh my God, the very people I've been fighting for 20 years <laughs> are still in charge. Yeah. And you finish up with Mrs. May as prime minister. Yeah. The total sellout. Um, and it was why at the end of 2016, when there was significant talk that if I could show what I'd done for charity, etc., that I might get put in the House of Lords. Um, would it have happened? I don't know, but it, certainly those negotiations were going on. And it was why I said, no, I don't want to pursue this. I'm not interested because they might just make such a bloody mess of it that I might need to come back again. And thank goodness I did that because I think if we hadn't had the Brexit party winning that European election, ousting Theresa May, putting Johnson in, I don't think Brexit would have happened at all. Yeah, I, I think agree. Have on with this endless, desperate uh, sort of constitutional crisis, it could have gone on for years and years and years. Uh, that's what I expected at, at the time, I think. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Um, let's move on to more financial matters. Then interest rate hikes in the US and an unexpected one in Australia um, is part of a trend that the central bankers are continuing to take inflation seriously, at least when it comes to hiking <laughs> interest rates. Um, what do you make of, of this continuation? Because inflation has come down quite a bit in some parts of the world, uh, and yet it doesn't seem to have slowed down central bank as much yet. Well, it's genius, isn't it? I mean, they got it wrong again. And they didn't put interest rates up when they should have done, when many of us could see inflation coming up over the horizon. And now we've got inflation, belatedly, they're putting interest rates up when oil oil's just fallen to 72 bucks a barrel. Yes, there are still food price pressures, uh, but inflation... It's sticky. It ain't going to go away completely. Um, but it doesn't look or feel like it's going to rocket from where it is at the moment. And I I think, that I just think they're getting it wrong. I think they're getting the whole cycle wrong. I don't think now is the time for countries to put interest rates up. I really don't. 
talking about getting it wrong. The uh, the poor Federal Reserve um, head, Jerome Powell, announced that the banking crisis in the US was effectively over and we didn't need to worry so much anymore. <laughs> Within hours of that announcement, the, the next <laughs> bank got into trouble and its share price absolutely plunged more than 50%, I believe. What do you make of the fact that we've got this slow motion financial crisis in the banking sector, the US banking sector, playing out while interest rates are still going up? Where do you think the priorities yeah. lie for the central bankers? You know, saving the banking system or dealing with inflation? Uh, probably saving the banking system, ultimately. <laughs> I think that probably matters to them more than anything else. And maybe it matters more to all of us, ultimately, actually, because we know from 2008, if this all goes belly up, uh, we will finish up paying a hell of a price sprint. Yeah, I mean, the Jerome Powell comments were comical, a bit like Comic Alley. You know, there are no American tanks in Baghdad and they're going past the windows all those years ago. Um, I, and look, I don't know, Nick, and I've said this last week, you know, um, this sort of slow rolling momentum of banking problems, it has a familiar ring. We saw it, it's exactly the, the pattern we saw back in 2008. I, I do suspect the banking systems overall are healthier and are better regulated than they were in 2008. I'm actually quite convinced of that. Um, but it doesn't mean there's not bad, it does not mean there's not more bad news to come. I'd be surprised if there isn't. 